Welcome to Redemption's podcast. This is Corey Ball, lead pastor at Redemption Community Church, found in Kirkwood, Missouri, in the greater St. Louis area. Before we dive into the content, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook to stay current on all things Redemption. You'll find both of these accounts by searching Redemption STL. But more than anything, we hope that this podcast will help inspire and challenge you to take your next steps in following Jesus. If you have any questions about God, Christianity, or redemption, don't hesitate to reach out. You can DM us on our socials or text us at 314-391-4141. And now, without further ado, here is the content you are looking for. Enjoy. My name is Casey Jordan. I'm so glad that y'all are here tonight. Um, I want to start by telling you about something that I absolutely love. If you've known me for more than like 10 minutes, uh, you probably know that I, I'm a super fan of C.S. Lewis. Like, I'm a super fan of C.S. Lewis. I love his writing. Um, I've been so impacted by him. And uh, a handful of years ago, I had an opportunity to go to England and spend a couple of weeks there studying in Oxford where, where Lewis lived, uh, studying at his home, the Kilns. And while I was there, uh, I visited a handful of these, of these little tiny used bookstores that they just have like sprinkled all throughout England. And while I was there, I found a couple of early edition uh, C.S. Lewis books, and I was really excited about it. I'm not, I'm not really a book collector in that sense, but I found some really good ones. And I just want to share a few of these with you because these have become some of my favorite things in the world. Uh, so this is my uh, second edition of Out of the Silent Planet, which is from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Um, this year, my parents gave me for Christmas this year. Uh, this is the entire Space Trilogy. It's from uh, 1986, I believe, but it is still in its original wrapping. So about 40 years old, still in the original wrapping. Everything in me wants to break into this and read these, and I just can't bring myself to break the wrapper, but I love this. Um, I have an, an early edition of The Last Battle, the, the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is my favorite series on earth. I love, I love this. This is an early edition. And then finally, I've got two more that I love. This one here is uh, a first edition of The Weight of Glory, one of my, my favorite things C.S. Lewis ever wrote. If you've never read that essay, it's a phenomenal essay. Uh, but this is my first edition. And then the book that really kind of got me going uh, on collecting Lewis books is this one right here. When Lewis's wife died, he wrote this little book called A Grief Observed. And basically all that it is, it's, it's his journal. When he was processing through the pain of losing his wife, he, would just, he ended up publishing his journal because it's a very just raw, honest wrestling with, God, why did this happen? What do I do with this? And uh, he published his journal. But while Lewis was alive, he published it under a different name, under the name N.W. Clerk. Because he had so many readers, he didn't want, he didn't want people to, to think maybe he had lost his faith or, or was doubting God anymore, because that wasn't the case. He was just struggling. And so he wrote under the name N.W. Clerk, and uh, I found this copy in Oxford by N.W. Clerk. So you will not find Lewis's name anywhere in this copy of A Grief Observed, um, and I love this. Now, I tell you about all this because... Like I said, if you've known me for, for any length of time, if you've had any, any length of a conversation with me, odds are you've heard me quote Lewis, you've heard me reference one of his books. Uh, if you're one of my friends, you've probably received a Lewis book from me at some point. If you haven't, it's coming, I promise you, um, because I'm constantly recommending his books, um, buying them for friends, giving them away. I have a stack of his books at home that I've never opened before because they're there so I can give them away when, when the right moment comes up. I love C.S. Lewis. Now, I tell you all this to say, as much as I love C.S. Lewis, 
C.S. Lewis is not my savior. I, I talk about him because I love him. But here's the thing. If you don't read books by C.S. Lewis, it's not going to change my relationship with you. It, I, I'm not going to push you. I'm not going to, if you're not interested, you're not interested. But here's the thing. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. And if you have friends who don't know Jesus, I hope you want that for them too. We talk about the things that we love. So if you love Jesus, let's talk about Jesus. Um, a study came out a few years ago that 82% of unchurched people, unchurched men and women, your unchurched friends, neighbors, family, 82% of them would attend church this Sunday. Like they would be here right now if someone that they trusted invited them. 82%. But in the last year, only 2% of Christians have brought anyone to church with them. Only 2%. Yet 82% would say yes. So here's the thing. There's this opportunity coming up just about a month from now. It's called Easter. Easter is one of those, one of those opportunities where you can bring people who don't know Jesus to, to hear the good news of who he is and what he has done. And so what I want to challenge you to do before we move into the rest of our time together, um, you got a card when you came in, this Easter card. On the back, there's space for three names. And so I want you to write down three people that you are going to bring this Easter. And here's the thing. If you don't have three names, if three people don't come to mind, then my challenge is going to be a little bit different. My challenge for you is to be praying that God would provide three people that you could bring on Easter. So bring three people. We want this room to be packed out. We want to have to use the upstairs because so many people are coming to hear about Jesus. So Easter, just about a month away. I can't wait to see you there, and I can't wait to see all of the people that you are going to bring. So with that, uh, we're going to move into our time together today. We're in this series right now called So What's the Difference? And throughout this series, we are talking about the difference between Christianity and other major world religions. So last week, Corey started us off by talking about the difference between Christianity and Eastern religions, specifically Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, today, we are going to go uh, a different direction and talk about uh, really the faith that gave birth to the Christian faith, and that is Judaism. Uh, Judaism is the oldest of the world's um, monotheistic religions. Monotheistic mean, meaning belief in one God, mono one theist God. So Judaism is the oldest of the world's monotheistic, as opposed to polytheistic religions, which are beliefs in uh, religions that believe in multiple gods. Now, if you have a background in Christianity, I mean, really at all, uh, Judaism is not, is not that difficult to understand. Um, in fact, their Bible is a part of our Bible. What we call the Old Testament, they call the Tanakh. That's, that's their Bible. Their, their stories are our stories. So when you hear about uh, men and women like Adam and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samson, Gideon, uh, Ruth, Rahab, uh, those are their stories and they, those are our stories. We have a lot of commonality with the Jewish faith. We have a shared uh, spiritual heritage. So their stories are our story. Their, their book is a part of our book. In the New Testament, the, the last third or so of our Bibles uh, was written almost exclusively by Jewish men, like almost, almost all Jewish. Um, the early followers of Jesus, almost exclusively Jewish, Jewish. The central figure of the Christian faith, Jesus, was thoroughly wholeheartedly, completely Jewish. 
Judaism forms the foundation of the faith that we have, and so there's, there's a lot of common ground here. Uh, Jesus was, was born a Jew. He was circumcised a Jew. He was raised a Jew. He celebrated all of the Jewish rituals and celebrations, and then at the age of 30, uh, around the age of 30, he began his, his public ministry, and that ministry in the early days was almost exclusively to the Jewish people. He taught in the Jewish synagogues. He uh, eventually taught in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, so what is the Jewish faith all about? What, what is it all about, and why did Christianity spring from it in such a way that it created two world religions instead of just one? So let's dig into this. Today, there are over 14 million Jews in the world. Six million of those Jews live right here in the United States. So you might have friends and neighbors who are part of that 14 million. Um, there are basically three branches of Judaism. The first is called Orthodox, Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Jews really seek to live out their faith as closely to the teachings of the Old Testament as they can. There are a few things they can't do because, because there's no longer a temple, but they really seek, as, as far as they're able, to live out Old Testament biblical faith. The second branch is called Reformed. Um, reformed is a more, a more modern branch. Some would say a more liberal branch. Uh, it's an updating, if you will, of Orthodox Judaism. Then the third branch is called conservative. Uh, conservative Judaism is really kind of this, this middle way between Orthodox Judaism and Reform Judaism. Now here in the United States, uh, the majority of, of, of the Jews living here are, are Reform, but, but despite the differences between these three branches, we're not gonna go into the differences, despite the differences between these three branches, at the heart of historic Judaism is this belief that there is one and only one God, and he is the creator and ruler of the universe. That's at the heart of the Jewish faith. And the essence of this faith is captured in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. And it's in this passage known as the Shema. Uh, the word Shema in Hebrew means hear or listen. And we, and we call this passage the Shema because that's the first word of the passage. So let me read this to you. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, Beyond this belief that there is one and only one God, the Old Testament teaches that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world that he created through his chosen people so that his chosen people could be a light to all the nations. That's what the Old Testament teaches. And that story, that story of God creating this, this, this community, this chosen people to go and be a light to the nations, really begins in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, chapter 12. So for the next few minutes, I want to kind of walk you through this history in order to get us into modern-day Judaism so we can begin to talk about the differences between what, what the Jewish people believe, what Judaism teaches, and what we as Christians believe. So uh, bear with me on a little bit of, of background here. But in Genesis chapter 12, here's what it says. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. 
Genesis chapter 12. So you have uh, Abram, uh, this man named Abram, and God says, Abram, through you, I'm going to begin to form this community, this nation, this, this people uh, who is going to represent me. Now, in this passage, his name is Abram, which means father of one. But later, God changes his name to Abraham. You might know him better by that name, to Abraham, which means father of many. It's symbolic of what God is going to do through this man, the community that he's going to bring out of his descendants. So God starts with this man named Abram. Uh, so the Jewish people start, start here, and they begin uh, to grow as, as Abraham's family begins to expand. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Now, I'm going to pause there. We'll talk about Jacob in a second. But let me just say that. You might have noticed uh, at different points throughout the Bible, you'll see God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's where this comes from. Those are really the, the forefathers of the Christian faith, if you will. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Uh, so Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, has this really interesting encounter with God. We're not going to get into that story right now, but at the end of this encounter, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So Abraham, father of Isaac, Isaac, father of Jacob, Jacob changes his name. Well, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. That's where we get the term Israel, Israelites, land of Israel, okay? Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And really from there, the, the community, the nation begins to expand. Um, but uh, while the Jewish people uh, were really born out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, their greatest prophet, really the, their greatest leader was a man named Moses. Moses. Um, he's the one who really organized them into a nation. See, at the time, the, the nation of Israel was, live, was living uh, in the land of Egypt. Uh, as, as the nation of Israel began to multiply and grow, the Pharaoh, the king of, of Egypt, began to, to get really nervous about, about their rapid growth. They were getting so big that he was worried that they were going to overthrow him and try to take over his kingdom. And so he enslaved them. So when the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, opens, Israel... Is, is now much larger than, than the family they were back in Genesis. They've expanded into a nation, but they're slaves. And so the people of Israel begin crying out to God for rescue. God, save us. Come rescue us out of our bondage. Rescue us out of our slavery. And God hears their prayers. And so he raises up a man named Moses. And through Moses, led the people out of slavery in Egypt, away from Egypt, and, and towards this land that he had promised to give to Abraham's descendants. So that's kind of the story here. And as, as God leads them out, he takes them into the desert and he gives them his law. Now we often call it his law, but really that, that's not quite proper. His instructions, his guidance. Here's what it looks like to live as a part of my community. And it's here with God giving them his instructions that, that God, again, through Moses, begins to organize them into a nation. They're no longer a family, simply a family. Now they're, now they're a nation. They're a large body of people. God also leads them to this promised land, this land called Canaan, that he had long ago promised Abraham to give to his descendants. Um, now, I just want to say this about the land of Canaan. That's, that's kind of what we know as modern-day Israel, roughly that same, that same place. That was not accidental. That was very strategic. See, the land of Israel was at the crossroads of civilization. If you kind of can imagine a world map on roughly kind of where the Middle East is, if the Egyptians wanted to trade with the Mesopotamians up in the north, they had to go through Israel. 
If, if those living on the, on the uh, northwestern uh, side wanted to come over to Mesopotamia or go down to Egypt, they had to go through Israel. I said a couple minutes ago that God wanted to form this community to be a light to the nations. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, were never intended to be this exclusive little club that didn't let anybody else in. They were intended to be a light to the nations. And so God puts them at the crossroads of civilization so that everyone has to encounter them and they can serve as his representatives. That was God's intent for the people of Israel. So he takes them to this land of Canaan. Um, he, he, he takes them in there first through Moses, then through a man named Joshua. Uh, Joshua helps, uh, through Joshua's leadership, God uh, leads them to conquer the land of Canaan and take it. And they begin to settle there. Um, now, uh, over time, God raises up some great kings, men like, like David and Solomon, to lead the nation. But the problem was, the people of Israel continuously turned away from God. They continuously, they, they were led by, by like terrible king after terrible king after terrible king. There's, I could count on like one hand the number of good kings there are <laughs> throughout, throughout the Old Testament. It's just a really, really bad run. And uh, after Solomon's reign, when his son takes over, uh, the kingdom splits. So they only had three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, as a united kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom, remember there were 12 tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom is 10 tribes, and they retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom were the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they took on the name Judah after the largest of the tribes. Now, sometime later, uh, because of their disobedience, because of their, their continually turning against God, the northern tribes, uh, the nor northern ten tribes, are captured by the Assyrians. Uh, and they are assimilated into Assyrian society, and, and they're lost. They never return to the land. Uh, to this day, you might have heard people refer to the lost tribes of Israel. That's, that's who they are. Uh, they assimilated in, into Assyrian culture. They intermarried with the Assyrians. We don't know who or where they are anymore. Uh, after that, the southern kingdom was captured by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were captured by the Persians, and the Persians allowed the, the, the two southern tribes to return to the land of Israel. So today, if you know someone who is of Jewish descent, they're either from the tribe of Judah or they're from the tribe of Benjamin. Those are the only two options. Those are the only ones that returned and hadn't been assimilated into some other culture. So that really gets us through the Old Testament. Again, thank you for indulging me in that history, but that takes us through kind of the story of, of Israel. And, and really, guys, that's our spiritual heritage. That's our story as well. And that leads us into the New Testament. Um, let me just tell you two more things here. Uh, there was a temple in Jerusalem uh, back in, in Old Testament times that Solomon built. It was destroyed um, it, around uh, 586 BC uh, when, when Israel was conquered. It was rebuilt and then later, fast forward to just, just past the New Testament, kind of end of the New Testament era, 70 AD, the Romans come in and destroy the temple again. So there were two temples, both destroyed. That second temple has never been rebuilt. Today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can see where the temple once stood, but where the temple once stood, uh, there's now something called the Dome of the Rock, and, it, and it's an Islamic mosque. That's what stands there today. So that kind of gets us into this New Testament era. But the reason I brought up the temple is because the, second, the destruction of the second temple really changed a lot for Judaism. First of all, it decentralized the faith. They could no longer meet centrally at the temple. So it really kind of spread out the Jewish faith. Uh, second of all, it led to the rise of synagogues. The word synagogue uh, simply means meeting place, gathering place. And so now, instead of going to the temple for, for teaching and for celebration, people went to their local synagogues. 
that happened because of the destruction of the temple. If the temple hadn't been destroyed, that wouldn't have happened. So that's really important for us to understand modern-day Judaism. Where did these people come from? Where, where, where did synagogues come from? It also meant that there was no longer a need for priests. Priests served in the temple, and when the temple was, was destroyed, there was no longer a, a, a reason to have, to have priests. Uh, there was no longer a need for kings because Israel wasn't living as, as an independent nation. And so many of the, the central figures that play a role in the, in the biblical story are no longer necessary. Instead, rabbis became the, the authority over the Jewish people. The word rabbi means teacher or master. And so rabbis either serve in, a, in an individual synagogue and lead kind of that group of people, or in biblical times, they would travel around. They'd be an itinerant teacher traveling around and telling people about, about who God is and what he's done. So that's where you see the rise of, of rabbis. Uh, the Jewish people then faced years and years of, of persecution um, and prejudice with, with undoubtedly the darkest era coming in 1939, 1940, when six million Jews were systematically killed under the, under the Nazi regime. That's, that's modern era. But something else that happened in the modern era uh, that also relates to the Jewish people is that they returned to the land. On, on May 14, 1948, uh, the new state of Israel was declared to be independent and sovereign, and, and it became a homeland where Jewish immigrants just began, began to flock there from all over the world. 2018 marked the 70th anniversary of Israel for the first time in millennia, being a free, independent nation once again. Now, that anniversary marks one final aspect of the Jewish faith I want to focus on here, and that's, that is this. The Jewish faith has always been a faith of hope. It's always been a faith of hope. Through, through the years with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the years uh, of, as slaves in Egypt, through, through the years in the desert, through the years in the promised land, through, through the wars and the exiles, even, even through the Holocaust, the Jewish people are a people of hope. And that hope is in the utter confidence they have that they are the chosen people of God and that God will not abandon them. That is their hope. That is their, their confidence. That somewhere, uh, sometime, God will deliver them, ultimately and finally, through the most incredible event in human history. That is the coming of the Messiah. See, the Jewish people have debated over who this Messiah would be but because God had long ago promised to send one. The word Messiah means anointed one. And throughout the Bible, when someone was anointed, it means that they were being specially commissioned for, for a mission or a task. And so God was saying, I'm going to send a Messiah, an anointed one, a rescuer. He's going to have a special mission, a special task, and he's going to rescue you. That was the promise God had made. And so the Jewish people to this day have clung to this hope, clung to this promise that God will send a rescuer. He will send the Messiah. They've debated who he will be, what, what, he'll, what he'll be like, what exactly he'll do, um, whether or not he'll even be a real person. But they believe that the Messiah is coming. God, God just made it clear to them through prophet after prophet after prophet. So, all of that history brings us to this question. What happened in Judaism that led to this thing called the Christian faith? Why did the Jewish faith uh, produce the world's largest and most influential religion, one that raced past Judaism in size and influence within just a handful of generations? What, what happened? Well, the short answer is this. About 2,000 years ago, 
a group of Jews became convinced that what Israel had so long looked forward to, this coming of the Messiah, they became convinced that he had come in the person of this Jewish man named Jesus. Jesus was a first century Jew, and he made an astounding claim. He claimed to be the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. Let me tell you this about, about um, his claim to be Messiah. He wasn't the first. There were actually a number of other people uh, who came before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. But here's what's different about Jesus. Jesus proved it. <laughs> Jesus proved it. And actually, he took the claim to be the Messiah a step further, as we'll, as we'll see in just a minute. But Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and he, he uh, authenticated those claims by performing just a ridiculous number of miracles, including raising people from the dead. Over and over and over again, he said, here's who I am, let me show you. Here's who I am, let me show you. That's what Jesus did. And so let me take you to, to one of the most intriguing sections in the entire Bible. This is the spot where Jesus takes it just one step further than his, than his predecessors who claimed to be the Messiah. Um, here's what happened. Uh, this is found in the 8th chapter of John. Uh, John, by the way, is one of the four historical accounts that we have of the life and teachings of Jesus found in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is in John chapter 8. Jesus was talking with the religious leaders, and uh, the, the religious leaders were aware of his miracles. They, they knew, they, you know, they knew uh, his teachings. They knew that, that thousands of people were following him. And so they asked Jesus, who do you think that you are? I want to hear from you, Jesus. Who do you think that you are? And here's, here's the conversation that took place. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, if a man keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. By the way, Abraham lived thousands of years before this conversation, all right? So the, the Jewish leaders are very confused right now. And so they say this, you are not yet 50 years old. Abraham lived thousands of years ago. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Now, let's pause there for a second. That seems like a little bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? He says, before Abraham was born, I am. And they're like, kill him, stone him. That's their reaction. That seems like an overreaction unless we understand what Jesus was claiming here, what Jesus was saying. Um, Jesus referred to himself as I am. Now, people sometimes wonder, why, I've, I've been asked this a number of times, why didn't Jesus just come out and say, I'm God? Why didn't he do that? Here's the thing, he did. He did, over and over and over again. It's just that he did it in a very Jewish way, because he was a very Jewish guy. So Jesus here uses this phrase, I am. Now, to understand this background, uh, we have to go back to one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. And that's when Moses, this great prophet of God that we talked about earlier, encountered God for the first time in a burning bush. It's found in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, what God does is God comes to Moses. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to, to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, the most, the most powerful man in, in the land and in most of the world, in the most if not all of the world, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. Let, let, my Jew, let his Jewish slaves go. I'm going to make them a free nation. And Moses is like, okay. Could you tell me your name? 
Like who, when I go and make this, this claim, when I go in and make this demand of God, of a, a Pharaoh, what God am I supposed to say sent me? What is, what is your name? And here's what, here's what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say. I am has sent me to you. That phrase, I, I am, is, is considered to be the most holy word in the entire world because it is the very name of God. It's considered to be so holy by the Jewish people that they won't, they won't speak it and they won't even write it out fully. Instead, they'll just write uh, the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Now, scholars for a long time thought that we pronounce this word Jehovah. You may have heard that before, the word Jehovah. That's, that's how scholars for a long time believed we pronounce this. But as we've learned more about the Hebrew language, uh, we know that, that a, a closer pr- pronunciation of this name is actually Yahweh. That's the closest we can come without having the vowels to work with, Yahweh. And so, as I said, um, the Jewish people wouldn't, wouldn't utter it and wouldn't even write it all the way out. But let's go back here to John 8. I tell you the truth, Jesus answers. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus claimed the very name of the living God for himself. The name that that no other Jew would would dare speak for fear of misusing it. Jesus says, I am. That's who I am. I am God. Jesus did claim to be God right here in this moment, and that's why they picked up stones to stone him. Because what Jesus was claiming was nothing short of blasphemy. They picked up stones to stone him because he claimed to be God. Here was a mere man man claiming himself to be God. But here's the thing. Jesus made that claim repeatedly throughout his life. I could take you to another half dozen, dozen places where Jesus makes the same claim. Um, When he stood before the high priest, right before his crucifixion, uh, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ? The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So are you the Christ? Uh, which, by the way, that's why we, we call him Jesus Christ, or more accurately, Jesus the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. That's who he is. But here's what Jesus said. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ? I am, said Jesus. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus making his incredible claims and authenticating those claims with miracles. So the question is, why didn't the Jewish people believe him? Why didn't they believe him? Um, Well, a lot did. Just be really clear, a lot did. It is not historically accurate to say that the Jewish people rejected Jesus. That's not historically accurate. Uh, The earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish. uh, Thousands of them, thousands of them. So it's not historically accurate to say that. What it is accurate to say is that the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. And and here's why. Um, They had it good. At this point in time, I mean, really, it's as simple as that. They had a good. They, they, were, they were living the good life. The nation of Israel was occupied by the Romans at this point in history, and they had set up the Jewish leadership to kind of, kind of govern the region under their authority, and, and they, they were well paid for it. They had a lot of power behind it. Like, they were living the good life, and the last thing they wanted was anyone or anything stirring things up with Rome. They, they did not want a Messiah. They did, not, they did not want a Messiah to show up and mess up their good life. They didn't want it. And so they rejected him. Um, but here's a better question. 
Not, not why didn't the Jewish people believe Jesus, but let's change that question a little bit. Why didn't more people believe in Jesus? Why didn't more Jews accept Jesus? Let's ask it that way instead to make sure that we understand that he did have a lot of Jewish followers. And the answer is really simple, honestly. They couldn't imagine that this is what God had in mind for a Messiah. They couldn't. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't fathom that this was the Messiah God sent. Jesus didn't fit their preconceived notions about what this Messiah would be like and what he would do. Remember, Israel was under Roman occupation at this point in time. So they, they envisioned a military leader who would overthrow Rome and liberate Israel. That's what they were expecting. That's what they wanted. They were expecting another Moses. Just as Moses had led, them, uh, led the people of Israel out of bondage to the Egyptians, they wanted a Messiah who would lead them out of bondage to the Romans. They were expecting another Moses, not, not a Messiah who, who tied a towel around his waist and got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples. Not a Messiah who would sacrifice his life on a cross. It's not what they expected. They wanted a larger-than-life action hero, and Jesus was a suffering servant. They, they had no room. They had no room in their thinking for a God who dies on a cross. It made, it made no sense to them. But here's what's really interesting. Uh, they should have expected Jesus to look exactly like he did because this is what the prophets had been saying for years. This is what it's going to be like. This is, this is who he's going to be. I want to take you just one of those uh, to a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Here's how Isaiah described this coming Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So here's the thing. There were all these popular expectations of what the Messiah would be like, but when it came to the actual prophecies made about the coming Messiah, Jesus fit them to a T. Jesus fit them to a T. Now, some people recognize that in Jesus. Some people realize that what began with Abraham so long ago um, and with the people of Israel was coming to maturity. That, that this, was, this was the natural uh, outworking of the story that God had begun so long ago. Now, we could spend, we could spend hours talking about how Jesus fulfilled these promises that God, God had long ago made to the Jewish people, but I want to take you just to one event, just one event, um, where I think we'll really see how Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And, uh, and that event is what Christians call the Last Supper which is actually um, a celebration um, of, of the Jewish Passover feast, all right? A lot of people don't realize this, but it's important to understand that every week when we take this thing called the Lord's Supper, we're participating in a Jewish festival, all right? It's, it, it, Jesus gave it new meaning, but it, it, it has, it's Jewish in origins, and it was part of their Passover meal. So let me take you to that for a moment. Um, as I mentioned, there was a time many, many centuries before where the people of Israel were enslaved to the Egyptians. So God used Moses uh, to lead them out of bondage and into freedom. And it took plague after plague after plague to get the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to finally release the people of Israel. And, and the 10th and decisive uh, plague was, was the worst of them all. It was the death of the firstborn son all throughout Egypt. Now here's the thing, um, and this is really important. Even though the Israelites were victims of oppression to the Egyptians, okay, even though they were victims of oppression to the Egyptians, 
the Israelites were not without sin of their own. The people of Israel were every bit as deserving of God's judgment as the Egyptians were. Every bit. Every bit. And so God comes to them. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice a lamb, smear the blood on your door frames, and then uh, when, when my angel of death, my instrument of judgment, passes through the land of Egypt, carrying out my righteous judgment, the angel of death will pass over any home marked by the blood of the lamb. Here's the thing. What the lamb's blood did is it, was, it declared death has already visited this house. Death has already visited this house. A sacrifice has been made. Judgment has already been here. So, as the angel of death carried out God's righteous judgment upon the Egyptians, the Israelites gathered in their homes to eat one final meal in Egypt. But that, that final meal would become the first of many meals commemorating their last night in Egypt. In fact, before Israel even left Egypt, God instructed them, this meal that you're enjoying right now, this meal that you're eating, I want you to do this every single year. I want, you, I want you to do this every year because I never want you to forget. I never want you to forget your rescue. So faithful Jews to this day all around the world celebrate the Passover to remember the night that God rescued them out of their bondage, out of their slavery. And so what they would do is they would eat, um, they would eat unleavened bread. The unleavened bread reminded them that they, they had to leave Egypt in a hurry. They couldn't wait for the dough to rise, and so they eat unleavened bread. They eat bitter herbs, and the bitter herbs are intended to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. And they drink, they drink red wine, which reminds them of, of, God, of, this, of the sweetness of God's promises and the sweetness of, of his fulfillment. It also reminds them of the blood that was smeared over their door frames that protected them from God's judgment. So they celebrate this meal together every year. So that's the Passover meal. Fast forward centuries later, Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples the night before he died. Here's what it says in Luke. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is the new, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, remember, the Passover meal was intended for the Jewish people to remember and to celebrate that God had rescued them from, the, from their slavery. But Jesus is here saying, God's about to do it again. God, God's about to do it again. This time, it, it's, not, it's not the Egyptians that he's going to rescue you from. It's, it's your sin that he's going to rescue you from. This time, uh, it, it's not the blood of a lamb that will be shed for you. It's my blood that will be shed for you. This time, you're not, you're not covered by, by that mark. You're covered by my mark. God is going to reenact this story. But this time, it's going to be different because this time, um, I'm, God, I'm, I, God is calling you out of a deeper slavery than anything you could have ever experienced in Egypt. God, God calling us out of our slavery to sin and into this community in relationship with him. This time, instead of the Passover meal just being for one people at one particular time in one particular place, this time, it's for all people at all times and in all places. This, this time, it has an eternal significance to it, and it's available to everyone 
not just to the people of Israel, but to the people of the entire world. That's what Jesus is doing here at this last supper, this Passover meal that he celebrated with his disciples. So here's what it comes down to. We as Christians share a lot of common ground with our Jewish friends, a lot of common ground with our Jewish friends. We share a a common spiritual heritage. We share a common morality. We share a common belief that there is one and only one God and he is the creator and ruler of the universe. We share that. The key difference hangs on the question of whether or not the Messiah has come. The key difference hangs on what we make of Jesus. Jesus offers himself as our sacrificial lamb. Uh, he, He shed his blood to cover our sins so that we can declare death has already visited this house. Judgment has come. It has been poured out on my Messiah, on my Savior. We live because he died. That's what Jesus offers. 